I'm Letitia, and this is Series 3 of the New Leaf Podcast, created for new and working mums everywhere. New Leaf interviews working women from a huge variety of industries to share their journeys of what happened to them after having babies, exploring the often huge professional and personal identity shifts that happen when we create the next generation. Our jobs are a huge part of who we are, and we don't stop being who we always were just because we've had a baby. There is huge pressure to be the perfect mummy when actually she doesn't exist and return to the perfect career when actually that doesn't really exist either. We are all muddling through and figuring it out. By sharing these amazing women's stories, I want to prove to you that motherhood is truly a rebirth in ways we never expect. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at New Leaf Podcast if you want to continue the conversation with the hashtag MyMotherhoodMyChoice. Before we get going though, I've got something special and free lined up for you. Click the episode details to subscribe to New Leaf Nutshell, my exclusive fortnightly summary write-up of these episodes with judgment-free motherhood tips and tricks, general musings and interesting articles about all things women straight to your phone. All factual articles or tips are academically supported so that you can feel confident you have the right information to make the right choice for your family. Doing all the Googling so you don't have to. Okay, let's go. Well, I promised I'd kick off series three with a bang. So here we go. Introducing my first ever male guest on the New Leaf podcast. Elliot Ray, founder of the podcast Music, Football and Fatherhood and published author of the book Dad, Untold Stories of Fatherhood, Love, Mental Health and Masculinity, joins me on this explosive first episode of Series 3. Incredibly, he also made his presenting debut last night on BBC One in Becoming Dad, a programme aiming to raise awareness around the changing expectations that modern dads face. This is an emotional, raw and moving documentary discussing many of the themes that actually we explore in this episode. I feel super lucky to have jumped on the Elliot train a few months ago, recording this episode very, very pregnant, just two weeks before I gave birth to baby number two. Elliot Ray is a powerhouse with an unstoppable mission to amplify the voices of dads, male mental health and equal parental rights in our society and his career is absolutely skyrocketing. I discovered him by accident a few years ago via his podcast, but then he blipped back onto my radar following an incredibly poignant BBC News article back in June 2021. The name rang a bell, I remembered his podcast, and thought suddenly that I simply had to get him on. Yes, controversial that this is a motherhood podcast, but I felt that Elliot's journey was too important a conversation not to have with you all as we definitely know and understand the importance of men in the fight for progress for women. Elliot's article described his journey suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after witnessing his own daughter's terrifying birth, where he nearly lost both his wife and child after complications from group B strep bacteria. In this interview, he describes the comments and judgments he faced, highlighting how far we still have to go in understanding and including men in the birth process. We all need to understand the psychological impact that witnessing a huge trauma can have and how watching the person we love go through something incredibly scary and complex can be jarring at best and deeply harrowing at worst. 
Sure, birth partners come along to NCT and hypnobirthing, but the whitewashing of and glossing over of some of the birth complications and injuries is problematic for a number of reasons that are probably too fast to go into in this introduction, sadly. But to try and simplify, these complications can be a surprise to us women, so can only be that much more of a surprise and shock to those who witness these events and are outside that female circle. When Elliot's article was published about his PTSD, he was inundated with private messages from husbands and partners reeling page after page after page of the trauma of witnessing birth. Obviously, it's important to mention that Acknowledging dad's trauma does not undermine our experiences as mums. Acknowledging it doesn't eliminate our own. But our experiences are all relative and as a mother of boys myself and given the mental health crisis we have globally amongst men, I feel this is something that should be talked about more. Poor male mental health affects society deeply. It affects our relationships, propensity to violence and it affects our children. And as Elliot's wife recovered from her own significant injuries, it was Elliot that had to take up the mantle of being the first point of contact for his own daughter's care in the NICU. This took up his token two weeks of paternity leave, and from then on, it was back to work. From witnessing my own husband go through this, with his entire paternity leave being taken up with constant hospital trips and doctor consultations, I know that this is no small task. Elliot's and so many other fathers who've witnessed traumatic births have had their worldviews and their lives changed and for too long have essentially been shouting into the void or just suffering in silence. Elliot didn't have the emotional capability to express what had happened to his family or to him and neither was there anyone to receive it or even ask about it. I have never consciously excluded men from this conversation. It is only because there is so, so far to go in the pre and postnatal care of women that I thought women, as the marginalised group, needed the most amplification. Many, many more dads want to be equally involved in child rearing, and this should be welcomed and not feared. We can't escape the fact that birth is an undeniably female process, but our support partners really, really matter. We cannot get back to work in the way that we want to without support and single parents excluded. This is most often through the dads. Whatever your family structure, positive male role models are needed. Toughen up, boys don't cry, man up, be strong, grow some balls, don't be a pussy. We all, women as well as men, need to do these things from time to time. Resilience is, of course, important in society. But denying men's feelings existence doesn't work. We see this in alcoholism, drug dependency and suicide affecting men so much more disproportionately than women. And being a great dad does not equal not being a man. To display feelings and speak up takes great strength. Having Elliot on New Leaf was a massive eye-opener and to be honest it was my great privilege to have him as the first certified bloke on the show. Not sure when I'll have the next one, but we'll see. <laughs> Who knows? He was also just really nice and really funny. I really believe in what he's doing for dads everywhere. So watch this space, look him up and watch his documentary. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Elliot Ray. Welcome, Elliot Ray. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Letty. Thanks for having me. 
You're so welcome. So the question I always ask all of my guests is, where are you in the world right now? And what can you see in front of you? So I'm in, upstairs in our spare room, which is a bit of a mess, to be honest. So it's good that it's just audio <laughs> and you can't see what's behind me. Um, <laughs> but I live in Watford and I'm looking outside the window and I can just see my neighbour's house. Very glamorous and exciting. <laughs> How long have you been in Watford for? So I've been here for three years and um, I'm so glad we moved here because where we live is very close to like the shopping centre, which is amazing. It's got everything you need, restaurants. It had a John Lewis up until about a year ago, but there's a massive field behind our house and there's a Cassiobury Park, which is one of the biggest parks in the UK, apparently. It's got like a pack of wolves and flamingos there and stuff. So what? it's crazy, right? Um, Wait, wolves? There's a pack of wolves in our park. Yeah. And okay, we just loose, loose in the park. Just no, not loose. <laughs> <laughs> They're not just right very around. I would never be there if they were. But now they're, they're contained. And it's so funny because okay. we, during half term, we went there every day. And my daughter actually named them. So, yeah, we go and see the walls all the time. And it's so funny because they are in one bit. And then, like, next to them is flamingos. I'm like, that is so random. You've got walls <laughs> and then flamingos. Yeah, like it's wolves that you associate with like Canada and and then flamingos, which are yeah. people, flamingos. Where are flamingos? Africa? Oh my God, I'm really betraying my ignorance now. Yeah, Africa, I don't know. South I'll Google it afterwards and see. Okay, let's just, let's, let's just edit that bit out. <laughs> God. Okay, so I'll just describe how we know each other. So I was saying to Elliot before we started recording, I actually listened to Elliot's podcast, Music Football, Fatherhood and Daddy Debates, probably two years ago, like a long time ago, we were on a long car journey. But I remember just thinking, this is such a genius idea. But he was then on a BBC News article I read, and I just knew that I had to have this guy on my podcast. And as all of my listeners know, very big deal to have the first bloke on the podcast. And I wanted to give up this spot to somebody very special. And I feel like Elliot has an awful lot to say on the topic of fatherhood and how it can change the direction of your life. So tell me about your yeah. immediate family unit. Who's in it? Yeah, so is, do I include the dog in this? Yeah, I'll include the dog. So there's four you of us. You can include the dog, yeah. <laughs> and there's um, me, my wife's nanny, my daughter, who's five years old. And we've got a dog called Jesse as well. So if I didn't include Jesse, I think my daughter would be very angry with me. So um, <laughs> I, should, I should include him as well. So yeah, there's four of us. And what did you do pre-baby? What was your life like? Pre-baby, wow. It was very free, to be honest. I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm like a, a bit of a hippie at heart. Even though I've worked in corporate roles and done that stuff, I'm quite of a, a free spirit. So me and my wife, we were in a band together for five years. And we just spent time gigging, recording, pursuing music, really. And we loved it. We were just traveling around all the time, making music. And I guess before you have kids, you don't really realize that you can just literally leave the house. Yeah. And you can just <laughs> go for dinner. And you don't have to think about what you're going to pack or who's going to look after who. Or my, my daughter's got a wheat allergy as well. So we have to be careful about where we go. Oh, wow. so there's all those sort of, sort of things that we have to think about. And pre-parenting, there was none of that, really. It was just, oh, go on holiday. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. Let's like, go tomorrow. Sweet. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> got my passport. Off we go. Literally, literally. Well, yeah. Yeah, we live that kind of life. And obviously, life has changed. I don't want to say it's for the better or worse. Obviously, it's for the better. But I can't lie. There are some things that, that I do miss. But having my daughter is amazing and being a dad is it's changed my life in so many ways, not just personally, but professionally as well. Okay, so life was a lot freer pre-baby. And then, so when did you guys get married? So we got married when I was 30. She would have been 29. So I was in 2013. Mm. Nearly eight years. Eight years, wow. Don't know how that's happened. And when was the birth of your lovely daughter? 
so that was a couple of years later. So we got married in August 2013 mm -hmm. and she was born October 2015. So you said that you did some corporate things as well. Were you in a kind of corporate role at that time and what was it? Yeah, so it's a weird one because my 20s, like, I put a lot of effort into the band and I was producing for various different artists. So I set up a music production company called Make Up Music, I remember. And that was when I would <laughs> go around to work with young people and teach them music production and speaking to them about life and gang violence and whatnot. And so while doing that and, and doing the band afterwards as well, like I was working in the civil service. I started up as a temp, actually, and I was working as a PA. But I didn't really have any kind of direction. I was just floating around. I worked part-time for a little while just to get a little bit of additional money. Mm -hmm. but, um, but when my daughter was born, I did start to think about work a little bit more. I did over the coming years think, actually, yeah, I can get promoted here and I can find some stuff that I like doing. What were the T's and C's like? Did you have a paternity leave package? Had you thought about this? What was the status quo for new dads back then? So even though the civil service has good T's and C's in terms of pension and flexible working generally. Paternity leave is still quite old school. It's just a standard two weeks, it's four paid two weeks. It? Yeah, so this is a standard that, that, you know, shared parental leave was obviously introduced in 2015. But in terms of like what we're seeing now, where some companies are just offering good actual paternity leave, not shared parental leave, just paternity leave. And even John Lewis made the announcement around equal maternity. Yeah, just last pay. week. Yeah so, yeah. so I think that is fantastic. You know, that's going to make a big difference because you don't have to have that conversation. It's more like, yeah, here you go. You're a new dad, have three months off, which is it's fantastic. It does put pressure on now as well, because if John Lewis are doing it, other companies, Sainsbury's, for example, Tesco's, you know, other employers are going to look at that and think for us to stay competitive and make sure we can um, attract talent, we're going to have to step up and do the same thing. So, yeah, it's a massive, massive thing. It really is. Mm. So tell me about the story of your wife's pregnancy and then the birth and how your life changed, which I know is a huge question, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty smooth, to be honest. Obviously, she had some symptoms that are to be expected, but there was nothing out of the ordinary or there was no big worries. She was able to work up until, I think, the due date. No health scares. She was healthy. The scans were fine. I guess that it changed when we got a letter about two weeks to the due date saying that my wife had been tested for something else and they'd found group B strep, which mm. is a bacterial infection that is normally not harmful to the baby, but can be. Mm. So um, my wife was offered intravenous antibiotics during the labor. Mm -hmm. So we got to hospital on the day and the antibiotics started. And, you know, I wasn't worried at that point, to be honest. I wasn't Obviously, I was a bit concerned as, you know, as a new dad and partner or whatever, but I, there was nothing else to be concerned about. There wasn't any signs of anything else going wrong. So we were in this like one room and it was a birthing pool. And it was quite nice, you know, it was quite serene. They had nice music. Remember the midwife was really friendly. So it was, it was all good. And then I think my, my wife's heart rate dropped, the baby's heart rate dropped. But very quickly, I remember the midwife like pressing this button. All these nurses The big red in. button. Yeah, the big red button. Yeah. We all went into the, uh, the main labor ward and that's where it really started to go down basically and after like 24 hours they decided that we need to get the baby out so they used the one choose 24 hours of labor at this point yeah so it was like the day yeah it was the day after it's the bad point it's like 3 a.m and because they were concerned about the baby obviously and then so when she came out she wasn't she wasn't very well and they had to resuscitate her when she was she wasn't breathing she was gray all that sort of stuff that's, oh it's still God. so vivid, you know, seeing your baby on one side of the room, they put on this little this little table. This doctor 
I think it was Greek doctor was working on a home, a couple of his colleagues. And then there was about eight doctors around my wife because she was losing loads of blood. So, And meanwhile, what are you doing at that point? Just standing there, right? What standing you there. So you can't do anything. So before I was, you know, we, we did hit no birthing. So during the labor, you know, I was... I was the birthing partner, we were doing breathing exercises and I feel like I had a role there and we had a birthing plan, didn't go to plan clearly, but we had a birthing plan so we were able to talk about that and, you know, just be there basically to support. But yeah, when that happens, there's literally nothing you can do. You know, you're just watching Mm -hmm. and praying and hoping, just hoping for the best really. But I think at that time, it feels like the world stops. I don't know if you're even thinking of any of those things. It's literally just like, just watching and feeling like it's not real. That's the word that was coming into my head, which is just surreal. You must have just been like, is this my life right now? Is this actually happening? I think that's it. Also, you don't feel like it's you watching it. You feel like you're a CCTV camera just watching down. You feel like a fly on the wall, like our body experience where you're just thinking, shit, like, Mm. what's, what's going on, you know? And also, I feel like for new parents, you don't really, not prepared for it. And I understand why, because maybe if people were prepared, they'd be scared of having children. But at the same time, maybe a little bit of like, okay, you know, if stuff doesn't go well, just have it in mind. So you maybe know how you're going to respond. But for me, I never thought that would happen. I hadn't heard anything about it. You know, now I know it's super common, but at the time I didn't know anything about it at all. So it was that shock of, is this happened to me? And like, what the hell is going on? This never happens. Why me kind of thing? Why us? Mm. So so the doctors, they took the fluid out of my daughter's throat and she started to breathe. And then they were like, we're going to take her to NICU. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go with her? Or do you want to stay? And had you discussed that with your wife beforehand? Like, you know, if she needs to go to the NICU, no. do I stay? Or do, had that even entered no, your conversation? We didn't, yeah. we didn't, I don't think I even knew what NICU was at the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I didn't yeah, know much. <laughs> I didn't know much at all. Like, didn't even know it really existed. So... I went down to NICU and at this point I was just a mess. It felt like I was just daydreaming. Like I was just walking, but not really conscious of what I was doing. But I just remember just going down this white long hallway. But I remember just thinking, oh, this is my bum. Like I feel like a child, like just helpless. Yeah. So anyway, got to the NICU and there was a nurse in there and she just looked at me because she could always clearly see that was a mess and she just looked at me. Which was like, literally, just get yourself together. You, your daughter's here. This is happening. You need to be present for her. And you need to be on top of things. And you need to be, you need to be present. How did that feel? It was a weird one. At the time, I was like, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? <laughs> but, yeah. but actually, I think it was what I needed. Because it just woke me up. And mm. up to that point, it was just like daydream. Do you know what I mean? It's literally just like... It's just a classic trauma. It's a trauma response, out-of-body experience. Yeah, it was just that out-of-body experience where you feel like you're watching yourself. And from there, I feel like I clicked into mode from there. And so we were in the queue for a little while and I was explaining things. And at that point, thinking, oh, shit, this is quite serious. So we stayed there for a couple of hours. And I think it, by that point, it was like 5 a.m. So there wasn't really anyone around. There's no other parents around, but there was like lots of other babies in the NICU. And then I went back to see my wife. And I think they're she was doing okay at this point and then I went back into the NICU about 7am and at this point now what what happens in NICU is every morning ward rounds yeah ward rounds yeah so all the parents Mm. go into a room and they get to have individual time with the doctor on their own in the NICU with their baby so all the doctors all the the parents gather in this it's like a waiting room and I remember sitting there 
And by this point, I'd been up for like 24 hours because I think we'd, we'd, we'd got to hospital on the Friday morning at about 4 a.m. And now we're like 7 a.m. the Saturday. And I remember I hadn't seen the other parents come in. And I was just astounded by like their strength. I couldn't believe it. It was a whole new world. I had no idea existed. And there was all these yeah. parents in there. And some had premature babies. Some had babies with a hole in the heart. Or another one had GBS. Like there was different things that the babies were in there for. But the parents, the parents, they were so focused. And they knew exactly what they were doing. And it was like work. It's like they were here for a business meeting. Like they understood. Oh, yeah what their baby needs, what they're advocating for, what the next steps are. And basically they just spoke to me and they were like, look, this, this is it. This is life now. This is what you need to do. And then I was like, okay, I kind of understood what my role was from that point. Mm. And it was to advocate for my daughter. It was to make okay. sure that she's getting the right medication. It's to understand what's going on. It's to do my own research, hold them to account and make sure she's getting the treatment that she needs. So from there, it was clicking into business mode really. And yeah, and just being a dad <laughs> I think yeah you learn as soon as your baby comes out you know you're you're a parent and now you, you have to advocate for them and that's it as soon as they come out the, the womb your role has started from then and there's something very weird about that NICU experience isn't there because often you actually have the most information because there are so many different specialists that maybe don't speak to one another and you're the person who's really paying attention to every single thing that's mm. going on it's such an important role if you miss those ward rounds, like often the nurses might not know really fully what was discussed that morning. They'll just be given a treatment plan. And they're just carrying it out. But if you miss that ward round, it's a big deal. Yeah, it is. With hospitals and medical care, like, you know, when you're, when you're younger, you, you just think that doctors and nurses, they know everything. They're on yeah, top they're of like it. Yeah, they're like gods. They're gods. <laughs> they can't do no wrong. You just realize they're human beings. They yeah. may have not slept last night or they may be going through a divorce or this is their first time in this new hospital or they're freelance and they don't really know their colleagues. You know, there's so many different variables and you're completely right. You're the center of this. It's you that has to make sure that this doctor knows the latest and they've spoken to the previous person and they know what medication your baby's on and they understand because they don't always, it's not even their fault. It's just, it just mm -hmm. is what it is. We came across some amazing, amazing doctors and nurses. In our book, I talk about Nagmeh who prayed with us for hours. She is amazing. And I am so humbled by the work they do. And it actually makes me feel quite bad sometimes when I get paid to do a lot less. <laughs> and they see their <laughs> jobs and you're like, I remember there was one nurse who I swear she never went home. And I would say to her, yeah. have you gone home? And she'll be like, oh yeah, I went home. I slept for four hours, took my son to school and I'm back. And I'm like, what? I'm how are you sure back? I saw you. Yeah, like I'm sure you haven't gone home. And she'd be like, Tell me, how much do you even get paid? Do you know what I mean? It's You're so saving crazy, lives. isn't it? Yeah. You're doing this incredible work. And it's just a pay rise, definitely. Boris, oh. if you're listening, <laughs> sort it out, mate. <laughs> You know what? If Boris is listening, I have more to say to him. Just... <laughs> we'll just skip over that, shall we? We'll just skip over it. But you're so right. You're so right. And that the quality of some of the people that you meet is just absolutely extraordinary. And you just cannot believe that people literally dedicate pretty much their whole life, personal life as well as professional life, because yeah. they spend so long in there. Like every shift is a 12-hour shift. You just think, how is this even possible? How are you doing this? But it sounds like you had the very classic NICU experience of 
being that central advocate for your child. But I wanted to ask, and this might be a stupid question about group B strep, because this is something that comes up a lot in mummy communities generally when people are saying, oh, my hospital doesn't test for this or my hospital does test for this. And I know that it's not a standard thing in the NHS to test for it. But I think what surprised me most about your story is that I didn't know that you could receive IV antibiotics and there's still a problem at the end. So do you know what happened there? I think it's just, you know, like with any medicine, it's not foolproof and yeah. things can slip through the net, you know, but maybe it did work a little bit. And if it, if we hadn't had the antibiotics, then who knows? So I do feel blessed that yeah. that we were tested for something else. My wife was tested for something else and they picked up the GBS, but I don't even want to think about what would have happened if we hadn't had that test. It's such a blessing that we did and we had the antibiotics because maybe that gave my daughter some protection. I don't know if we'll ever know that. But group B strep is so common. It's a common bacterial infection. And it's a simple test. You can get one privately for like £8 or something like that. And it's, like, it's ridiculously wow. cheap. In the UK, we don't test for it routinely. So I would say like any parents, any expecting parents, just get a test. It's like literally £8. And I think it will put your mind at ease because it can be serious if it does transmit to your baby. I think one in 10 babies who contract meningitis as a result of GBS will die. Another one in 10 will have serious lifelong disability. So it's a very serious thing. But that's something that can be avoided. So we're working with the Group B Strep charity to help them to raise awareness um, of GBS and um, just encourage more people to get tested for it. So I think they basically, I think the cost of NHS testing people, they would spend more money testing than they would on treatment. Treating. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's maybe that is right. But for that family, it's not a monetary yeah. equation. Like, who cares when it's your child that's got, that's got group yeah. strep? You know, that doesn't matter at that, at that point. It's Yeah, absolutely. And I always say this, like, statistics are all very well. But if you're that one in a million or one exactly. in 40,000 or whatever, it's yes. for you, it's 100% chance. It's just, yeah, so yeah. the least they could do is just tell people. At least, like, give them a leaflet and say you can go and get tested at it's this a really good place. Point. And some some trusts do, some trusts don't. And they've got a lot on. Don't get me wrong; they're pretty understaffed, underpaid, or whatnot. But the more we can do to raise awareness of that is is really important. It's something that, that I personally champion, and I make sure uh, my platform champions as well because mm-hmm. we need to do more about that. So, take me to the point then when you got discharged. So, after a couple of days, they like, gave us a room. So, I was, we were staying in this little room the three of us and for a couple of weeks like the infection was going up and down and some days it was like you know my daughter was responding to the antibiotics some days she wasn't so that was a whole roller coaster but we were okay like but you actually got to stay in the hospital yeah yeah, they gave us a room and i think like i, I don't know but i think they just thought you know what let's let's give these guys a room and we, we managed to get a room there such a blessing because I remember the first couple of days I had to go home and that was a long drive and it was just like i didn't want to leave my wife alone it was it was horrible going home so after a a few days my daughter was able to spend time in the room but we had to go back to NICU like five times a day okay. and when we were there we were there for about an hour or so and we'd go five times a day for the antibiotics and so we walked back and forth all the time and towards the end of the two weeks we finally had the good news that the infection was like gone which was great but then she developed this bump in the back of her head just randomly on that day that we just got the news about being able to go home and that night I think that night was the hardest you've been so strong for that two weeks and you've all, you know, tried to be positive and you've just been on business mode and you're so tired. Yeah. Like that, fo- we were just exhausted, mm-hmm. to be honest. And then to get that news and the doctors at that point were very worried. Like they were concerned. Obviously they see GBS a lot. So for them, when they can see the antibiotics working, they're not too concerned. But when that happened, the bump, that's when they were worried. And we got this special pediatrician that we'd never seen before came in from another hospital 
and sat down and had a meeting with us and whatnot. And basically, we had to have an emergency MRI scan the next day. And that night was the hardest, probably the hardest point of my life, easily the most difficult night of my life. Um, we just prayed, basically, and cried for hours. And the next morning, went to do the MRI scan, then went back to the room and waited. And I always remember that the nurse is coming in, like she just burst through the door. <laughs> she just burst through the door and came and gave us a massive hug. Aww. And she was like, not to worry. It's so like bone structure. I don't have to worry. And it was mad because I feel like with the NHS staff, we'd become friends with them. We were living there. We'd seen them all the time. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. We were just there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Basically living with them for two weeks. So they'd seen like the highs and the lows and stuff like that, you know? And when she came running in, oh my gosh, I was like, thank you, God. <laughs> thank you. And then a couple of days later, we ended up going home. So yeah, that was that whole journey. And it's mad, isn't it? Because, and I was reading about this on your BBC News article, that you've spent the whole of your pat leave in this parallel universe that you didn't even know existed two and a half weeks prior. Like you just thought you were going to have the baby and then bring them home and, I don't know, hang out, go to the pub, whatever people do on pat leave. Again, I wouldn't know because I had a similar experience to you. And then you're going back to work and people are asking, oh, how's the baby? With no idea. So what was that like for you? Yeah, it's a weird one because people are a bit awkward, right? So you're like, do I say something and then just end up crying? Yeah. Or just end up having an awkward conversation? Yeah. So you think, nah, bothered. So you just say, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just getting into it is just long, basically. And sometimes people don't want to hear it. <laughs> like, literally, they don't want to hear it. I don't necessarily want to talk about it with, because it's not even people that I know that well. So you don't really feel like you want to get into detail. Sometimes you don't have time because you just run in between meetings. So it's easier just to say, yeah, it was good. Like I'm tired, new dad, sort of thing, rather than getting into the details. And mm. uh, so, yeah, you didn't, I didn't really get into the details about it with anyone, really. And how much of that do you think is you being a bloke and other blokes not really knowing what to say? back again and how much do you think that was just your own coping mechanism probably a bit of everything probably a bit yeah. of everything probably a bit of like yeah me being a man and not necessarily talking so much like now I would but back then definitely not as much probably part of just workplace culture like on a day-to-day -day basis sometimes you don't have that opportunity especially when you're in a quite a busy role and got a lot on and yeah probably partly just coping mechanisms as well and like I couldn't really talk about the birth for a long time it was only about three years after. So, so yeah, about three years three after. Three years. I was, yeah, that's when I could talk about it without it bringing back that trauma. At that point, if I'd spoken about it in depth like this, I, I wouldn't have got through. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't talk about it like that. It was too raw. It was like three years after once I'd accessed that support, I could process things properly. And was it that you couldn't talk about it because you were worried that you were just going to break down in tears or was it because you literally couldn't find the words? So even though life has moved on, you're at home now, you're still in that space. You're still in a state of shock. You're still trying to come to terms of what's happened. Me and my wife would be up all night sometimes just trying to understand what had happened, replaying things in our mind, reading and researching. Like we couldn't accept it. We couldn't accept yeah. that it happened to us. We could have been worse. It could have, like, just all those things are through your mind. So to talk to someone about it, 
is it can't just be done in a five minute conversation at the tea point. No, you know what I mean, no. it's too deep. It's just it's just no point. So yeah, and when it's and yeah. when it's complicated as well, like something like group B strap. I mean, you know, my entire professional career is in the motherhood space at the moment, and I know a bit about it. You know, I'm I'm still asking you questions. It's the medical stuff as well that's awkward to explain to people and time consuming, yeah. as you say. You can't do it in five minutes. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes it's easier just not to. You said that it took three years until you felt able to seek help. And at this point, was your working life started to migrate towards fatherhood yet as a theme or not really? I thought it was born in October. 2015 and on New Year's Day actually 2016 that's when I started writing a blog because obviously I was trying to process everything so I've always been very like busy-minded and always have to be doing something and like having a newborn there's nothing there's, we're not doing much we're just in the house and at that point as well because my wife had postnatal anxiety so we didn't leave the house a lot at all in those early times like most time we left the house was to go to A&E to be honest because we were so worried about our baby so we didn't really leave the house a lot and it was winter as well so we were just in so I had a lot of time so I was knackered and whatnot but I was just like started writing a blog and it was like Elliot Ray or something like that.com it was like a personal blog and then I think like two weeks later I thought you know what music football fatherhood I think I should call it that and then so I started writing that and then a couple months later a couple of dads got in contact and they were like oh, I like this so they joined the team and it was just like a small thing we were doing and then in 2017 I wrote an article for the independent and that was shared 17,000 times in a day wow and it was oh the second God. most viewed article in that day second to a Trump and Brexit article whoa <laughs> yeah whoa. And, um, that day that day changed my life literally I remember it I was with my wife and we were sitting down and we both had a week off a week off work and I was I was writing and then I was writing a press release about something and then she was like, oh, why don't you just write about your experiences? So I wrote I wrote it and I think, like I'm a Christian, I believe in God and I, I genuinely believe God that wrote that article for me because I wrote it in five minutes and I don't even remember really writing it. It just came out and then I sent it about half an hour later and then within the, within the hour they got back to me saying, it's great, can we have some pictures? And then what? An, an hour later it was on the website going crazy. Like That's literally amazing. this all happened in about four hours. And some of those mm. barriers that are in the way sometimes they're not there because this is your life's purpose is what you're supposed to be doing and you connect with people. I mean, so that's crazy. So and, and the fact that it emerged so soon after your daughter's birth, I mean, it must have been a huge processing mechanism for you. But what was it that got you to that stage three years later where you were like, actually, I think I need to speak to somebody about what happened? Mm. So funny enough, actually, it was, <laughs> I was doing MFF and like, I'd never spoken about it. I'd never spoken about the birth trauma. It was more just about being a dad. It was an outlet for me, but I didn't go into the detail. But anyway, I was, I was talking to um, someone that runs a motherhood platform and then she was asking me about the birth and she could just see, I just couldn't talk about it. There was tears in my eyes and I was emotional. It was just like very hard to even recount the steps. And then she recommended I go and talk to someone about it. And then when I spoke to the person and relayed the symptoms that I'd had, at that point, actually, I was on the other end. I was coming out of the worst symptoms. But mm. when I was talking to the doctor about what I had experienced in that, in that first year, that's when she was like, yeah, it sounds like what you had was PTSD. Because at that point in the first year, like, I couldn't sleep. I was getting insomnia. I was getting flashbacks. I was constantly worried about my daughter getting ill again or the infection coming back. I was crying at random things like mm. films or just being on the train or... Just, just feeling overly emotional and like feeling quite difficult to deal with just life on a day-to-day -day basis life, yeah. and the challenges of life 
became quite overwhelming. And luckily for me, I gradually felt better over time. And I always want to make that clear that other people aren't so lucky for whatever reason. Maybe they haven't got a partner they can talk to. Maybe they haven't, I don't know, maybe just biologically our bodies are different. We process things different. But for me, it was like, okay, cool. I can, I, I was okay. But other people, it does get too much and overwhelming. And yeah, so when I spoke to her and I spoke to the birth trauma specialist and she was like, okay, cool. Like running through the symptoms and whatnot. And that was literally like three years later, uh, late 2017, early mm. 2018. Some NHS trusts are, are screening dads now. So if you're what you call high risk, so if you've either had previous mental health problems or your partner suffering from postnatal depression or you have witnessed a traumatic birth, if you're one of those three things, then you're in the high risk, which means you're more likely to have some sort of issues. Mm. And for me, I was in two of those categories, traumatic birth and partner postnatal anxiety. She was di- diagnosed and had counselling of that in the first few months. But yeah, back in 2015, even though it wasn't actually that long ago, <laughs> like there was nothing around mental health for dads, you know? So no. you're just like, you've been through a traumatic experience. You've been spending time in NICU, a couple of days back at work, uh, back into it, back at work, dealing with a newborn, dealing with just a full-time job again, back to life, you know, without mm. anything to, to process what had, had just happened. You know, when you feel like you're going to lose your wife and child and it's very real that that could have happened. And then you go through all that aftermath and you go back to work. It's, it's like crazy, you know, and, but there's no support, even a conversation about how are you doing? How, do you need to process this? How are you feeling? Do you need some mm-hmm. more time? Like just that acknowledgement, you know, and that conversation. And so a lot of people like I did, you just, just live through it. Basically you just, <laughs> and you just struggle through it, which ended up happening. And like, when you say it out loud like that, you could have lost your wife and child and you know it would be nice just to be asked how you're doing it's so simple and yet we just don't do it for whatever reason and obviously we were talking about this just before we started recording but my husband was in the same situation preeclampsia is really dangerous I could have died my child nearly died and no one ever asked him no one Mm. ever said how are you doing you know and I also had postnatal depression and as a husband or a partner it is a big deal to watch somebody go through something very big psychologically Mm. and also just be dealing with their own trauma and nobody ever asked him how he was how old is your he's two he's two two. okay yeah that's the thing is two years later and no one's even said (laughs) I honestly I don't think anybody has which is like I'm like laughing but it's sad it's It's really sad and it's just crazy that we have to get people on podcasts to bring awareness to this stuff but you know I think there has been more awareness generally of male mental health in the last few years but I think because birth is obviously such a female-centric act there's no two ways about it Mm. it's the woman who goes through it the woman who harbors the child etc etc but part of what this podcast is about is obviously motherhood and you can't deny the role of partners in Mm. in that space and if the partner is suffering then the mother suffers just as if the mother is suffering the the father is suffering too it needs to be cared for as a whole family unit and i think fathers are often left out yeah 100 it's not about one or the other it's not about that at all it's just about acknowledging the the birth partner has a role to play in this and that i will experience things as well honestly i'm like having an epiphany as we're speaking i just can't even believe that so often nobody really considers the dad and it's just like bye it's just really sad 
it is sad it is sad isn't it but things are changing now like some trusts are screening which is good yeah but... which is really good and also like, in yeah. that john lewis announcement that we talk about that's big as well yeah. because i think that that does indicate that they are recognizing not just from a mental health perspective but just the importance of the dad in that family unit you know there's plenty of research that shows that, that you know babies need secure attachment in the two years not just doesn't have to be with mum or dad or could be with any caregiver but they mm. need a secure attachment and the biggest barrier to secure attachment is mental health so we need mm. both parents to be in a good position to be able to build that attachment with their baby for that baby to you know build the resilience and stuff they need for their own well-being when they come into toddler years so mm. it is really important that both parents are supported. The NHS found they did some, a study with new mums and they found the biggest support new mums reported, the biggest support to them over and above all the services available to them was their partner. So their mm. partner needs to be in a good position to support the mother of the child, the mama. So, Absolutely. So we need to make sure that the dad is acknowledged and the dad is feeling okay so they can play their role to support the family and and the baby benefits the mum benefits and it's you know mm. rightly so the mums have been getting the focus rightly so that doesn't need to change like they need to get more focus but we also need to start thinking about the dad especially if it's a traumatic birth because you're watching as someone said to me the other day it's like watching your partner have a car crash in slow motion <laughs> but when it's when it's a traumatic experience right there's nothing you can do and he's just like it's going bad and you're just watching on and you're you're just hoping that these professionals that you've met a few hours ago are going to save your family's life and it's it's literally going through that and then okay back to work on monday it's like what the fuck yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like seriously it's crazy one of the guests i had um back in series two she has three kids i think it was her second child she had a really bad postnatal hemorrhage so similar to your wife and she was joking but sort of not joking she was like yeah i think my husband was way more traumatized by that than I was actually and we laughed it off and brushed over it and as we're talking as in you and I are talking now I'm a bit like that would be a pretty big deal just to watch your partner on a table massively bleeding mm. not able to stop it a horror movie has just happened in that room and you're just thinking is this normal is this not normal and, it, and as you said because they're worried that people won't do it the people don't really talk about the, the bad side of things that can happen and yeah. doesn't always necessarily happen but can happen um, and like quite often happens yeah. so and i think yeah. with dads as well there's that thing of ah, uh, like you shouldn't complain, do you know what I mean? Because you didn't go through it. And even yes, like the BBC article, yeah. there was a few comments on social media. Like, oh, why is he complaining? He wasn't trying to give him birth. Like, there's oh, a don't few read comments. The comments. Don't read the comments. It's like, I, skimmed, <laughs> I skimmed a few and I was like, forget this bit, like, forget this. But there's a few comments, people saying, oh, like, why is he complaining? There's one guy's like, try going to war. And I was like, are you serious, mate? What like what's what try going to, to the... what what even <laughs> is that part? like that's but also bear soldiers got PTSD mate so let's not pretend the war was all gravy a lot of people <laughs> were traumatized from the war so I don't know what you're trying to compare here like he should have been in the war but that is a lot of the response that you'll get maybe not to your face but some people will be thinking that Just like keyboard he warriors can't com- yeah he yeah. can't complain it's not he didn't go through it do you know what I mean it wasn't his point like and that's a, that's another thing why men don't talk about it they feel like. I can't complain. So there is that kind of thing as well where you think, yeah. oh, people really are going to judge point. me because I didn't, they're going to think I'm a weasel or whatever. Because you know, Yeah, people are going to think that you're, again, I hesitate to use this word, but people are going to think that you're a pussy or that you are weak because you're talking about your feelings. And again, it's that female-centric, which I, again is really important and is really good and is natural because it's part of the birth process. But actually 
just as you said, like if you're benefiting the dad and looking after the dad, actually you're looking after everybody. And the mm. woman has been through through something really massive, but so has the father. <laughs> and yeah. if you're protecting, supporting, nurturing, helping the father, you're helping the whole unit. So when you look forward on what you want to achieve in the like next decade in terms of what you're doing at MFF, where do you see your career going? So for the listeners, hello. My, uh, <laughs> I have a platform called Music Football Fatherhood and it is a, a platform all about open conversations around being a dad. But for me, I think it's in the future, it's about just doing what we have been doing, but in a bigger and better scale. And obviously mm-hmm. we have a book which has been released called Dad, Untold Stories of Fatherhood, Love, Mental Health and Masculinity. Mm-hmm. And that is a collection of 20 stories from dads. And it's so powerful. And the dads have been so vulnerable and so honest. And it's literally written from a place of putting their their souls onto the table, basically, and bared their souls. It's really very, very personal stories about all kinds of experiences, some from the most difficult moments around stillbirth and, and widowhood and miscarriage to some of the just everyday things that people, dads will experience around identity and you know, time to pursue passions and share parental leave and work-life balance. You know, there's a range of amazing stories in there from dads that are from all backgrounds in terms of race, in terms of location, in terms of age, sexuality as well. And it's just a really powerful, really, really powerful book. And I think it's aimed at moving forward the conversation about mental health, you know, giving a space for dads to know they're not alone and reading stories from people like, like them. I think it's, equality is a big part of it as well and how men can do more in terms of equal parenting and, and, and gender equality and playing their part, especially now since the pandemic where we've seen an increase in men doing childcare. So it really crosses over all, the, all of those and, and around masculinity and, and men being vulnerable and opening up. And it's been doing amazing things. It hit number 10 in the Amazon Fatherhood book charts, which is just amazing. It was the number Incredible. one new release on Amazon as well. We've had some amazing support from people like yourself, Letty. I, I thank you so much for like having me on your platform oh, as a first welcome. dad. I really, yeah. really appreciate it. I enjoyed <laughs> the conversation. I wish we could talk more. And yeah, just thank you to you. And oh, it's, been, it's been amazing. Well, I'm so inspired. I'm so glad that we made this happen. And I think what you're doing is amazing. It's amazing. And I just can't thank you enough for joining me. Thank you so much. It's an absolute privilege. Um, oh, thank you. Take care. Well, you made it to the end. Enjoyed it? Let me know on Instagram or Twitter, or better yet, drop me a rating on iTunes. Have a lovely day, and if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye, everybody!